So that's our portion for study this morning as we continue to look at the book of Ephesians. And you'll notice as you look at this section that there's a particular focus on heaven and on what God has done in saving us and making us a people that long for heaven. As I thought about that, I thought of a way to introduce a sermon this morning, and I was reminded of a sermon by a 19th century pastor theologian named Thomas Chalmers. And in this sermon, the sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He gave an illustration of why genuine born-again believers live for heaven, and the men and women of this world do not. Now, it's a longer quote from him, but I want to read this to you because I found it helpful. He wrote this. He said, imagine a man standing on the edge of our green world. Looking towards it, he sees abundance, smiling on every field. And all the blessings the world can afford, scattered all around and throughout every family. He sees the light of the sun, sweetly resting on every house, and the joy of friendship, brightening society. Imagine this is what he sees on earth. But turning upward and looking into space, he sees nothing but a dark and unfathomable unknown. Do you think he would freely say goodbye to the earth and commit himself to the dark solitude of space? Would he leave this world's full homes and become a solitary wanderer through the void of the second vision? Would he not shrink from the desolation that is beyond it? Would he not be happy to keep his feet planted upon the earth and take shelter under the blue sky? But now think what would happen if, as he's thinking these thoughts, some happy island of the blessed floated by, and there burst upon his senses the light of its surpassing glories and the sounds of sweeter melody. And he saw clearly that on that island a purer beauty rested upon every field, and a more heartfelt joy was experienced by every person. And he could see in that place peace and holiness and universal goodwill with pure joy in every heart, which united the whole population into one joyful society who loved one another and who were all loved by their benevolent Father. Do you not think that what before looked like a dark wilderness would become to him a land of invitation? And do you not think that this passing world would instead seem to him to be a barren wilderness? So in that quote, you have a man looking around him, and he sees this world. He sees the beauty of it. He sees the blessings of it. But when he looks up, he sees nothing but darkness. Well, this is a picture of the non-believer. This is a picture of the man or woman of this world who cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so it's quite natural for them to live as if this world is all that there is. But then in his illustration, it goes on, and this same man, now he looks up and he sees this island of the blessed. He sees a, a better world with pure joys, with brighter colors, an enduring world. And this is a picture of a believer, of a Christian, of a man or woman who have seen that actually there is a world far better than this one to live for. So he or she leaves behind this world, stops living for this world, and instead begins to live for that world which is to come. Now, the illustration's a good one because it shows us this, and I think this is so helpful for us to understand, that it makes perfect sense for the men and women of this world to live for this world because it's all they can see. And it makes perfect sense for those who are born again, those who are genuine Christians, to live for the world which is to come because by God's grace, through faith, we can see that there's a better world worth living for. It makes sense. And so it's natural for us to like this illustration because if you're a believer at a very deep place in your heart, you know that heaven's real. You know that you belong there. You know that Christ is exalted there and you want to be there. And so you commit yourself to live for that. That's something that's real about you if you're 
a Christian, and yet we all know that we find that to be a struggle, right? So why is that? If we know that heaven is real, if we know that Christ is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, if we know that this life is short, that we cannot keep this passing life, why is it that we find ourselves over and over and over living for this world as if we get to keep this world, as if this world is all that there is? Well, it's a good question, and there's a lot of answers that we could give to that question, but I want to just give one answer this morning that will help us with the sermon. One of the reasons why we keep struggling to live for heaven is because we spend so little time thinking about heaven. We spend so much of our time thinking about this passing world and the stuff in this world and the toys in this world and the people of this world and life in this world, and we give precious little thought. Brothers and sisters, pray for me in this, even as I pray for you in this. We give precious little thought to eternity. So by faith... We know there's a better world. By faith, we can see Chalmers' happy island of the blessed. But we struggle to live like it because we don't meditate and think about the reality of what's to come. Well, our passage for study this morning, it helps us with that. This is a passage that's rich in gospel encouragement. This is a passage that teaches us to set our hearts and our hopes on heaven. Uh, It's a passage that teaches us that there's a better world ahead of us. And better still, it's a passage that teaches us that we have already been seated with Christ in heaven. And so it encourages us to live like it. So we're continuing the study in Ephesians this morning. If you were with us last week, we began a three-part series in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We said that this, this passage, verses 1 to 10, that it's both very optimistic And it's also very pessimistic. Well, we focused on the pessimistic aspect last week. We thought about uh, the fact that the Bible is so clear about the hopelessness of men and women who are in their sins. We thought about man's spiritual condition apart from God. And we saw that there is absolutely no way, there's no hope for any man or woman to be good enough for God or to save themselves, or to somehow live the kind of life that God's going to approve of, because the Bible says very clearly that by nature we're dead in our sins. So we don't love God, we don't want to live for God, instead we love ourselves, and we live for ourselves in this world, and that's at the very heart of what it means to be a sinner. And we focused on that pessimistic news, but we didn't stop there. No, we we said that the fact that there is no hope in man doesn't mean that there's no hope for man. So we continued the sermon. We looked at verses 4 and 5 last week, and we saw the hope. Those first two words of uh, verse 4, but God, they contain the hope for mankind. So there's no hope within. There's no hope of what we can do to somehow make ourselves right before God. But that doesn't mean that there's not hope. There's great hope, and the hope is God. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. It tells us what God has done for us to save us. It tells us that we can be profoundly optimistic about our God who is committed to save and who has done everything necessary to save. In this passage, and it's a a gospel-rich passage that we're looking at. So this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 4 to 7. In this passage, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see what God has done in saving his people. We're going to see what motivated God to save his people. 
and we're going to see why God saved his people. So if you have the little handout that was given to you as you came through, you see we're going to study this passage together this morning by answering those three questions then. What has God done in saving his people? What motivated God to save his people? And then why did God save his people? Let's look at that first question together then in verses 4 to 6. What has God done in saving his people? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you look at this section, you see that, that Paul is delighting in God. He is exulting in God. He's expressing the goodness of God in providing salvation for his people. And look at the, the last part of verse 5. And notice what's just kind of an aside there when he says, By grace you have been saved. Because that word grace, salvation, that's really at the heart of this passage. And that's what Paul's unpacking for us in these verses. He is explaining in detail exactly what it means that God has saved his people. Now look at verse 4. Look at verse 4, you notice that he's focused on God. He shares with us the reality that God is the source of our salvation. And we're going to look at verse 4 more in just a little bit when we think together about what motivated God to save us. But for right now, I want us to look at verses 5 and 6, and I want us to see what Paul unpacks there as he talks about the salvation that we've received. And what's fascinating is that in these verses, in verses 5 and 6, Paul actually invents three new words to explain what happened to believers. Three new words, three new idea. Paul says here in these verses that in salvation, God has made us alive together with Christ. That he has raised us up with him, secondly. And third, that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, these three words, phrases in the English, these three words, made alive, raised, and seated, these words correspond to kind of three successive events in the history of salvation, what Christ has done. So, being made alive corresponds to Christ's resurrection from the dead. Christ was resurrected, re resurrected we were made alive. Being raised corresponds to Christ's ascension into heaven. So Christ bodily ascended into heaven, and we were raised with him there as well. Being seated corresponds to Christ's heavenly session, and that's not a word we use a lot, but it speaks of Christ's eternal reign from the throne of God, that Jesus even now is a king who is reigning, and he will reign forever. And the amazing thing is that when it says that we are seated with him, it speaks of of us being with him in that place of authority, in that place of rule. We're going to unpack this more as we go through the sermon together this morning. But when you put those pictures together, what it, what it does is it gives us a rich picture of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. And here's what we need to understand. Our salvation flows out of Christ. Uh, it's because we are united with Christ that all of these things are true of us. So that in salvation, in the mind of God, what is true of Christ is true of us, those of us who have trusted in him. So when Christ was made alive again in the resurrection, we were made alive together with him. When Christ ascended to heaven, 
we were raised with him. And when Christ sat down on the throne of heaven, we were seated with him there. Now, that sounds wonderful. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, let's look at these three concepts, these three words in the original language. Let's ask the question, what has God done in saving his people? First, in salvation, God has made us alive together with Christ. Look at verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Last week, we spent a lot of time thinking together about what it means that those who are without Christ in the world are dead in their trespasses and sins. We said it means that they've been cut off from the life of God. It means that there is an antagonism in them towards God. It means that they are unable in and of themselves to do anything that would be worthy of honor or any kind of value before God, unable to do anything spiritually good. But then we said at the moment of salvation, something very dramatic happens. A, a wonderful change takes place, and that's what Paul's speaking of here when he talks of being made alive. It's, it's God reaches down into our spiritual death, and he gives us life. He gives us spiritual life. I like how John MacArthur described this. He said, when we became Christians, we were no longer alienated from the life of God. We became spiritually alive through union with the death and resurrection of Christ, and thereby, for the first time, became sensitive to God. Another way to say this is that we were born again. Another way to say this is that we were born from above. Another way to say it is to say that we were born of God. And we have the life of God within now because God has reached down into our spiritual death and he has given us spiritual life so that now we are alive. Now we're new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a, the Bible's talking about a dramatic difference in the before who we used to be, dead in trespasses and sins, and now in the present, made alive together with Christ. But what's the practical difference that it makes? that we've been made alive together with Christ. There's, there's a lot of answers, actually, that we could give to that, but I just want to give us one to meditate on. Think about what Paul says about the fact that we've been made alive to God in Romans chapter 6. There we see that being made alive together with Christ means that we are now dead to sin. So take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and I want us to see this clearly. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 14 here Paul unpacks what it means that we have been made alive together with Christ and how that should impact the way that we live as Christians. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 14, and kind of look up at me when you've got it, so I know you're with me. Sorry, I said Revelation. Let me say Romans. Romans chapter 6. You'll find that more helpful. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 14. Here's what Paul says there. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And what it means is that those of us who've been made alive in Christ, made alive to God, we are now to consider ourselves as dead to sin so that when sin comes along and entices us and whatever the different manifestation is in your life, I know what they are in my lives. I'm not sure what it is in your life. But when sin comes along and tempts us, what are we to say? We're to say, you know what? That's who I used to be. I used to be dead in trespasses and sins. I used to be enslaved to the passions of lust. I used to be under the power of sin, but I have been made alive together with Christ. And so that's not who I am anymore. And I want to live like it. And by God's grace, we turn away from the sin and we march on towards heaven. It's this reality of who we are in Christ that enables us to live in a way that brings honor to Christ in this life. That's the first aspect of what it means that we've been saved. It means that we've been made alive together with Christ. There's a second aspect that he talks about there in the first part of verse 6. In salvation, God has raised us up with Christ. So look at verse 6 back in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and raised us up with him. Sometimes that, that word there, raised up, it speaks of resurrection from the dead. But Paul had just been speaking about that. So something else is in view. Now think about what you know about what happened to Jesus after he was raised from the dead. What did he do? Well, for 40 days, he spent time with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then what happened? One day he's standing before them and then he ascends bodily up to heaven. These men are amazed, awestruck as they step back and they watch Jesus ascend bodily to heaven. Now, for those of us who've grown up in the church, we hear that and we're like, well, of course, yes, of course, that's what happened. Imagine the impact that that would have had on the disciples, seeing the Savior raised up like that and knowing, and here's what's important, knowing that he is now in heaven. Now think about what Paul just said about us. Consider the wonder of what Paul says when he says that we have been raised up with Christ to heaven. But what does that mean? It means this most fundamentally. It means that this earth is no longer our home. Now we are citizens of this world, but that's not our first allegiance. We are first and foremost now citizens of heaven. We've been transported with Christ to a new realm. So heaven is our home, and heaven is the place of our citizenship. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So there's been this radical change in terms of our outlook there's been this radical change in terms of the way that we think. So what practical difference does it make in the life of a believer that now we've been raised with Christ and we are with him now in heaven? Well, it means we think differently. It means that we don't think the same way we used to. How did we used to think? Well, think of the illustration that we read at the beginning. This, this man sitting on the edge of the world, and he's looking around, and what does he see? Well, all he sees is this world. 
sees the green, sees the trees, sees the grass, all of it. That's all that he sees. And so every part of his life is wrapped up with this passing world. Now think about who we are. We are those who now are, are citizens of heaven. And so the way we think should be transformed by that reality. So I should no longer judge things in this life based on what kind of temporary benefits I might get, what kind of happiness, what kind of pleasure I might experience in this life. That's how men and women of this world think. They think about, well, what are the benefits for me now? Will this help me get, away, or get ahead now? Will this make me happy now in this life? Well, as those who've been raised with Christ, we think differently. Now we think, is this going to benefit my soul? Does it make sense for me as someone who's a citizen of heaven to participate in this? Does this help me lay up treasures in heaven? So the question is, well, what are we living for? And what we live for will be determined by how we think. And as those who've been raised with Christ, we should be thinking, we should be those who are heavenly minded. And so we're judging the things of this life based on the value that they will have in eternity. Should affect us in that way. And then third, another aspect of salvation is that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that this is probably the most profound of these three statements. And we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So we've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised with Christ now. But now he goes on to say that we've been seated with Christ. Why is that so significant? Well, think about where Christ is seated. Now, we thought about that when we studied Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. We saw that, that God had, by his, by his power, raised Christ from death all the way to the highest place of authority, the very right hand of God. We're talking about the very throne of God. And here's this magnificent statement from the Apostle Paul that we have been seated with Christ because what's true of Jesus is true of us. And we're seated with him. What does it mean? It means we have a great destiny. It means that God's purpose for his sons and daughters is that they will reign forever as kings and queens underneath the authority of God. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said to the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. There's this great destiny. There's this great authority. There's this great position. It also means this, that we've been given great dignity. We've been given great dignity by God. So Christians may be mocked or persecuted or ridiculed in this life, but we have to remember that that's a very passing thing. We have to remember that this life is very quickly over, and then for endless days, we will be where we are even now, seated with Christ. The day will come when we will reign with him forever. And the amazing thing, it's worth meditating on more this afternoon, is to think about that this passage says that that's actually where we are now. We are even now seated with Christ. Think about what it means in terms of the dignity that has been given to us in Christ. It should affect everything about how we live. So it's not right for Christians in America to cower in fear as the culture turns more hostile towards biblical morality. It's not right. 
It's not right for us to shrink back from declaring the truth simply because many in our culture have rejected it. Why? Because we have not been saved for cowardice. We have not been saved for cowardice. We have been saved for love and proclamation of the truth and bringing honor and glory to God in our day in the way that God has called us to be and live and, and, and um, serve him in this day. So we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now, so we should live like it. I think most especially it means this, that we should live the way King Jesus lived when he was on the earth. All right, so we should live that way. So we should not be afraid and pull back from the surrounding culture. Instead, like Jesus, we should move into the culture with the truth of the gospel and love for the sake of ministering to others and proclaiming Christ. We've been saved for that. We've been given that dignity as those who follow King Jesus. We should move towards the lost with the gospel. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We should do that. Uh, and just, just as Jesus was loving towards his enemies, so we should be loving towards those who ridicule us or who hate us. Friends, we have to understand that the lie of our day is that you cannot disagree with someone and love them. In the gospel, we can. We can disagree and we can love them. And that is precisely what Jesus did. And who are we? Well, we're those who have been seated with him. And so it should affect everything about how we live this life. Now, let me make two observations from this reality that we've been saved. Uh, we've been made alive. We've been raised. We've been seated with Christ. Two observations. A Christian is not a normal person. Now, we've made this observation before, but we need to make it again. We need to understand that much of what the Bible is is an explanation of what it means to be a Christian. So we know who we are so that by God's grace we can live like it. So what is a Christian? A Christian is not simply someone who was born to Christian parents. A Christian is not simply someone who believes certain things about God and Jesus. A Christian is not simply someone who holds to certain supposedly antiquated and bigoted views of morality. No, to, to be a Christian is to be a profound thing, and that shouldn't sound like pride, it should sound like wonder. It should sound like amazement that God has called us into this kind of relationship with him and has made us his people. So who's a Christian? You know, a Christian is someone who's been made alive together with Christ. A Christian is someone who has the life of God within, someone who's been born again. A Christian is someone who's been raised up with Christ. So, so we may be in this world, but we are no longer of this world. Now we are citizens of heaven, and our allegiance is first and foremost to our king. A Christian is someone who is even now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It means that we have this glorious destiny, right? If what, if what we believe is true, if the Bible is true, it's not a manual for how to be a nice person. It is a declaration of what God has done through Christ to make a new people who are distinct, and who live differently because the very Spirit of God lives within them. And of course it does. We have this glorious destiny to reign with Christ forever in a new heavens and a new earth. And it gives us this glorious dignity, a dignity that can't be taken from us. And that leads to the second observation. This is not simply theology. 
This is reality. And that's, that's, that's what we need to embrace this morning. It's not a nice philosophical, you know, kind of message from a religious person up front. What we're talking about is something that if you're in Christ, you've actually experienced. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. And these things cannot be true of you without making an impact on you. There will be a difference in your life, in the way that you live. So before, you were dead in sin. That's what we learned last week, that we live for this world, that we live for the pleasures of this world, that we were focused on ourselves. But now you've been made alive with Christ. So, so just like I do, you still sin. But now you hate your sin. And now you fight against it because something's changed. Because you're different now. You're a new person. Before you were a man or woman of the world, like the man in Chalmers' illustration, you could only see this world. So, so heaven seemed like pie in the sky. It seemed like kind of this dark void of meaninglessness. And so we were busy kind of scurrying around, accumulating as much stuff as we could, knowing full well that we're going to die and we're going to leave it. And yet we lived as if we're going to live here forever, and we know we're not. But now we have been raised with Christ. We've been made citizens of heaven, which means we have the privilege of, of kind of thinking about all that we have, all that we possess, all that God's called us to do in light of eternity. And so we get to live for King Jesus in light of eternity. And so you are someone who's a citizen of heaven. And so you think about heaven and you long for heaven and you try to lay up treasures in heaven. Before, we desired dignity, right? We worked hard for approval and affirmation and acceptance, and we wanted people to like us based on what we had or what we looked like or what we could do, and we were all in this kind of race to get other people to like us. But now, we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, and we have been given dignity as a gift and it's a dignity that cannot be taken from us. We've received that. This profound dignity that will reign with Christ forever. And the image, again, just think of the image of the throne of God. Seated with Christ. Ruling underneath our great king forever and ever and ever. Friends, it impacts the way we live. At least it should if we realize it. And so that's the prayer for us, that it, would, that it would travel from the brain to the heart and we'd meditate on who we are in Christ so we would live differently. What does it mean to be saved? What has God done in salvation? He's made us alive with Christ. He's raised us with Christ and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Salvation is this tremendous thing Paul lays out for us here. There's a second question. What motivated God to save his people? Look again at verses four to six. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at how Paul speaks of God here. Again, the first two words of verse 4 are so dramatic, such a contrast. But God, this one who has done for us what we cannot do, 
But I love what Paul does here because, you know, he's not just stating facts about God. Look at the way he is exalting and glorifying and delighting in God as he describes God as this being who's rich in mercy, this being who has great love, this one who's marked by grace. And here he describes God, and in describing God, he explains what motivated God to save us. And he uses these three characteristics. He, he points to mercy and to love and to grace. So let's look at those. First, God is merciful. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy. What's, what's mercy? Mercy is kind of this compassion that, that moves you towards those who are suffering. And that's the idea that God has it in him to be compassionate towards those who are suffering and in need in order to help. That's what God is like. And notice what Paul says about God. Paul says that he's rich in mercy. And the idea is that he has this inexhaustible treasury of mercy that he freely pours out on those who are suffering and needy and broken. Well, friends, if God is that kind of God, then those of us who follow him, we should be merciful as well. One of the great prayers for this church is that we would be a church that's marked by mercy. So that when there's physical suffering in this church, that we would be quick to move towards that in order to help. But I'm also praying that this would be a church that's marked by mercy towards those who are struggling with sin. Because here's the thing, we all are. So we look great on a Sunday morning, but there's no one here who's not broken. And there's no one here who does not need mercy. And we can either be a pride-filled church looking for ways that we're better than other people, or we can be a church that's marked by mercy. I bless God that I don't think we're the first. I think he's helping us grow in being merciful. And may he continue to do that. So that when we hear a brother or sister is struggling in some way, we don't pull back from them, but instead we move towards them in order to help and serve and come alongside and encourage and call back, call back when necessary to repentance, demonstrating mercy in that way. We also want to be a church where we see people in our community saved through the gospel. What will help us do that? One of the things that will help us do that is just to reach out in practical ways with demonstration of mercy towards those who are in need. That we would look for needs and we would try to fill those needs in our community. So I'm, I'm grateful for the ministry that Bob and Mary Morrison have in receiving and distributing appliances. So they get these appliances donated, and then they look for people who need them, people who can't afford a new appliance, and they go out into the community to, to bless those people in Christ's name. It's a good model of looking for ways to be merciful in our community. May we be merciful like God. Second, God is loving. Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you notice that there was nothing lovely about us? There was nothing that should have drawn God towards us because there was something attractive about us. No, God himself is a God of such great love that he moved towards us even in our death in order to rescue us. And that's, that's the idea, the word there for love. It's the, it's the familiar Greek word agape. If you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard that word before. It's this self-sacrificial, self-giving love that moves out towards the other. It's the love of God that's seen at the cross. So John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. What motivated God to save us? It was his great love. And where was his love most clearly seen? It was seen at the cross. And that brings us to the gospel, this reality that we were created by a good and holy God, a loving God who made us to have a relationship with him. He wanted us to walk with him. He wanted us to love him and to serve him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rejected God in the garden. They broke his law. They thought it would be better to live for themselves. And from that sin has fallen all the brokenness of this world. We send in them, and because we come from them, well, we've inherited that same nature so that we were born with a disposition that did not want to love and serve God. Instead, we were born with a disposition that wanted to love and serve self, and we've all done that. In a hundred different ways, we have rejected God who is love, and instead of serving him, we've served ourselves, and we've harmed others as well. We have all, everyone in this room, pastor included, done things that we know are wrong, and we know that they're wrong at a very deep level. And the Bible says that that's sin, and that sin is what separates us from God. And the sin is serious because it brings us under the wrath of God, because God is good. He will judge sin. And as we said last week, there's no hope in ourselves to be good enough for God, because he's perfectly holy, and we're not. We're sinful, and we're separated from him. So what hope is there for broken, hopeless sinners. Well, the Bible has this tremendous good news, and we're just reading about it in Ephesians chapter 2, that God is a God of great love. And how did he demonstrate that great love? Well, God gave. Yeah, he sent his son into this world. The eternal son of God became a man, Jesus, and Jesus lived a perfect life of love for God and love for others. He always obeyed in the ways that we have all failed to obey. He always served in the ways that we have all failed to serve. And then he laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinful men and women. And he died. And then he rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted that perfect sacrifice. And now there's this offer of salvation. It's for you this morning. If you will turn from your sins and and turn from like living for yourself and, and living for this world as if this is all there is, and you'll instead look to Jesus and you'll confess your sins and just ask God to be merciful to you for Christ's sake. God is a loving God, and he will receive you this morning. He will forgive all of your sins for Christ's sake. Put your trust in Jesus, and you will have the forgiveness of all your sins this morning. Jesus becomes your Savior. God looks at you as if you live Jesus' perfect life, and all of your sins, well, he paid for those on the cross so that you might be reconciled to God. Friend, if you're with us this morning and and you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, this is the morning to do that. We would encourage you, even now, where you are, cry out to God, ask for mercy, put your hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone, and God will save you. And if you want to talk with someone about that, I would love to talk with you after the service this morning, or you could talk with someone around you about what God has done for them in Jesus. I know that many would love to talk with you as well. Friends, this is the hope of Christianity. This is the gospel of this God who is great in love. Brothers and sisters, as I thought of an application for us, I just, I'm just reminded, of course, that, well, now it's Christmas season. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, to get caught up in trees and gifts and spending time with people that we know and love, and there's nothing wrong with that. All of those things are good things, but, but Christmas isn't ultimately about Christmas trees and presents 
and even people we love. It's ultimately about God's love demonstrated through giving us the Son. So may we be a people who meditate on that reality and praise God for his great love demonstrated to us in Christ in this special time of the year. Well, third, we see in verse 5 towards the end another motivation of God to save us, and it's the fact that God is gracious. It's that middle part, verse 5, or towards the end of verse 5, where it says, by grace you have been saved. Grace is God's favor given to those who deserve his wrath. Grace is God's kindness shown to those who do not deserve it. It's a wonderful free gift. And it's really at the heart of what Paul's thinking about in this whole passage. And so, Lord willing, as we study verses 8 to 10 next week, we're going to spend a lot more time thinking about the fact that our God is gracious. So what motivated God to save his people? Well, God is rich in mercy, and God is great in love, and God is full of grace. A final question, why did God save his people? Look at verse 7. So that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. If we understand what that verse means, it's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Why did God save his people? To what end? What was his purpose? His purpose was so that for eternal days, he would demonstrate the riches of his grace the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. You see that word immeasurable there, at least if you use the English Standard Version. We've seen that word before. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, we heard about God's immeasurable power. And the idea is that it's something that's too great to be grasped, too great to really fully be fathomed. And, and now we hear that God is a God of immeasurable, rich grace. And so it's something that's too great to be grasped, so it's something that has to be demonstrated. And that's what you see here in verse 7. It's going to be demonstrated. God's grace is going to be demonstrated through pouring out kindness on his people and not just for a year or a century or a millennia or an age. No, he is going to pour out his kindness on us for all eternity. So just as wave follows wave follows wave at the ocean, so age will come upon age will come upon age where all that God will be doing is pouring out his kindness on his people, demonstrating the immeasurable riches of his grace. That is an amazing thing. Now for all eternity, God will be glorified for his grace and for all eternity, we will be recipients of his kindness as a demonstration of his grace. Now, we need to let it sink in. Because think about what we said at the beginning of the sermon. One of the reasons why we find ourselves tripped up over and over and over in living for heaven is what we don't, we don't think about. Or living for earth is that we don't think about heaven. Verse 7 invites us to meditate on what it means. So what does it mean? Well, I'll just consider a few brief statements about what it means. For all eternity, we will dwell with God in a perfect world where nothing is broken or evil or painful anymore. Revelation 21, 
verses 3 to 5, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. For eternal ages, we'll have no reason to fear those who in this life harmed or deceived or tempted us to sin. Revelation 21, 7 to 8, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And the Bible says that for all eternity, we will live in a world that is made bright by the glory of God himself. In Revelation 21, verses 22 to 24, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And for endless days, the Bible teaches that we'll live in a fruitful world where everything will be as it should, productive and life-giving and beautiful. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the streets of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is the happy island of the blessed that Chalmers was talking about in a sermon. There's two kinds of people in the world. There are those who, when they look, all they can see is this world. The busyness of it, the money of it, the baubles, the shininess. But then there are people who see this better world, and so they live for it. And my question, friend, is which one are you? What are you living for? and live for Christ. Put your hope in him and he will be your king. Let's pray.